Volume 3, Chapter 6 of The Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Seaboard Parish by George MacDonald. Chapter 6 the gathering storm the weather cleared up again the next day and for a fortnight it was lovely in this region we saw less of the sadness of the dying year than in our own parish for there being so few trees in the vicinity of the ocean the autumn had nowhere to hang out her morning flags but there indeed so mild is the air and so equitable the temperature all the winter through compared with the inland counties that the bitterness of the season is almost unknown this however is no guarantee against furious storms of wind and rain not long after the occurrence last recorded turner paid us another visit i confess i was a little surprised at his being able to get away so soon again for of all men a county surgeon can least easily find time for a holiday but he had managed it and i had no doubt from what i knew of him had made thorough provision for his cure in his absence he brought us good news from home everything was going on well weir was working as hard as usual and everybody agreed that i could not have got a man to take my place better he said he found Connie much improved, and from my own observation I was sure he was right. She was now able to turn a good way from one side to the other, and finding her health so steady besides. Turner encouraged her in making gentle and frequent use of her strength, impressing it upon her, however, that everything depended on avoiding everything like a jerk or a twist of any sort. I was with them when he said this, she looked up at him with a happy smile i will do all i can mr turner she said to get out of people's way as soon as possible perhaps she saw something in our faces that made her add i know you don't mind the bother i am but i do i want to help and not be helped more than other people as soon as possible I will therefore be as gentle as Mama and as brave as Papa, and see if we don't get well. Mr. Turner, I mean to have a ride on Old Spry next summer. I do, she added, nodding her pretty head up from the pillow, when she saw the glance the doctor and I exchanged. Look here, she went on, poking the eider-down quilt up with her foot. Magnificent, said Turner but mind you must do nothing out of bravado that won't do at all i have done said connie putting on a face of mock submission that day we carried her out for a few minutes but hardly laid her down for we were afraid of the damp from the earth a few feet nearer or farther from the soil will make a difference it was the last time for many weeks anyone interested in my connie need not be alarmed it was only because of the weather, not because of her health. One day I was walking home from a visit I had been paying to Mrs. Stokes. She was much better. 
in a fair way to recover indeed, and her mental health was improved as well. Her manner to me was certainly very different, and the tone of her voice, when she spoke to her husband especially, was changed. A certain roughness in it was much modified, and I had good hopes that she had begun to climb up instead of sliding down the hill of difficulty, as she had been doing hitherto. It was a cold and gusty afternoon. The sky eastward and overhead was tolerably clear when I set out from home. But when I left the cottage to return, I could see that some change was at hand. Shaggy vapors of light gray were blowing rapidly across the sky from the west. A wind was blowing fiercely up there, although the gust down below came from the east. The clouds that swept along with it were formless, with loose fringes. Disreputable, troubled, hasty clouds they were, looking like mischief. They reminded me of Shelley's Ode to the West Wind, in which he compares the loose clouds to hair and calls them the locks of the approaching storm. Away to the west a great thick curtain of fog, of a luminous yellow, covered all the sea-horizon, extending north and south as far as the eye could reach. It looked ominous. A surly secret seemed to lie in its bosom. Now and then I could discern the dim ghost of a vessel through it. As tacking from north or south it came near enough to the edge of the fog to show itself for a few moments, ere it retreated again into its bosom. There was exhaustion, it seemed to me, in the air, notwithstanding the coolness of the wind, and I was glad when I found myself comfortably seated by the drawing-room fire, and saw Winnie bestirring herself to make the tea. It looks stormy, I think, Winnie, I said. Her eyes lightened as she looked out to sea from the window. You seem to like the idea of it, I added. You told me I was like you, Papa, and you look as if you liked the idea of it, too. Per se, certainly a storm is pleasant to me. I should not like a world without storms any more than I should like that Frenchman's idea of the perfection of the earth, when all was to be smooth as a trim-shaven lawn, rocks and mountains banished, and the sea breaking on the shore only in wavelets of ginger beer or lemonade. I forget which, but the older you grow, the more sides of a thing will present themselves to your contemplation. The storm may be grand and exciting in itself, but you cannot help thinking of the people that are in it. Think for a moment of the multitude of vessels, great and small, which are gathered within the skirts of that angry vapor out there. I fear the toils of the storm are around them. Look at the barometer in the hall, my dear, and tell me what it says. She went and returned. It was not very low, Papa, only at rain. But the moment I touched it, the hand dropped an inch. Yes, I thought so. All things look stormy. It may not be very bad here, however. That doesn't make much difference, though, does it, Papa? No further than that being creatures in time and space, we must think of things from our own standpoint. But I remember very well how, when we were children, you would not let nurse teach us Dr. Watts' hymns for children, 
because you said they tended to encourage selfishness. Yes, I remember it very well. Some of them make the contrast between the misery of others and our own comfort so immediately the apparent. Mind, I only say apparent. Ground of thankfulness. That they are not fit for teaching. I do think that if you could put Dr. Watts to the question, he would abjure any such intention, saying that only he meant to heighten the sense of our obligation. But it does tend to selfishness and what is worse, self-righteousness, and is very dangerous, therefore. What right have I to thank God that I am not as other men are in anything? I have to thank God for the good things he has given to me, but how dare I suppose that he is not doing the same for other people in proportion to their capacity? I don't like to appear to condemn Dr. Watts' hymns, Certainly he has written the very worst hymns I know, but he has likewise written the best, for public worship, I mean. Well, but Papa, I've heard you say that any simple feeling that comes of itself cannot be wrong in itself. If I feel a delight in the idea of a storm, I cannot help it coming. I never said you could, my dear. I only said that as we get older, other things we did not feel at first come to show themselves more to us and impress us more. Thus my child and I went on, like two pendulums crossing each other in their swing, trying to reach the same deadbeat of mutual intelligence. But, said Winnie, you said everybody is in God's hands as well as we. Yes, surely, my dear, as much out in yon stormy haze as here beside the fire. Then we ought not to be miserable about them. Even if there comes a storm, ought we? No, surely. And besides, if I think we could help any of them, the very persons that enjoyed the storm the most would be the busiest to rescue them from it. At least I fancy so. But isn't the tea ready? Yes, Papa, I'll just go and tell Mamma. When she returned with her mother, and the children had joined us, Winnie resumed the talk. I know what I'm going to say is absurd, Papa, and yet I don't see my way out of it, logically. I suppose you would call it, what is the use of taking any trouble about them if they are in God's hands? Why should we try to take them out of God's hands? Ah, Winnie! At least you do not seek to hide your bad logic, or whatever you call it. Take them out of God's hands. If you could do that, it would be perdition indeed. God's hands is the only safe place in the universe, and the universe is in his hands. Are we not in God's hands on the shore because we say they are in his hands who go down to the sea in ships? If we draw them on shore... Surely they're not out of God's hands. I see, I see. But God could save them without us. Yes, but what would become of us then? God is so good to us that we must work our little salvation in the earth with him, just as a father lets his little child help him a little, that the child may learn to be and to do, so God puts it in our heart to save this life to our fellows, because we would instinctively save it to ourselves, if we could. 
he requires us to do our best but god may not mean to save them he may mean them to be drowned we do not know but we know that we must try our little salvation for it will never interfere with god's great and good and perfect will ours will be foiled if he sees that best but people always say when anyone escapes unhurt from an accident by the mercy of god they don't say it is by the mercy of god when he is drowned but people cannot be expected ought not to say what they do not feel their own first sensations of deliverance from impending death would break out in the thank god and therefore they say it is god's mercy when another is saved if they go farther and refuse to consider it god's mercy when a man is drowned that is just the sin of the world the want of faith but the man who creeps out of the drowning choking billows into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth do you think his thanksgiving for the mercy of god which has delivered him is less than that of the man who creeps exhausted and worn out of the waves onto the dreary self-beaten shore in nothing do we show less faith than the way in which we think and speak about death o death where is thy sting o grave where is thy victory says the apostle here 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 cry the christian people everywhere it is an awful sting a fearful victory but god keeps it away from us many a time when we ask him to let it pierce us to the heart at last to be sure but that can't be helped i mean this is how they feel in their hearts who do not believe that god is as merciful when he sends death as when he sends life who christian people as they are yet look upon death as an evil thing which cannot be avoided and would if they might live always be content to live always death or life each is god's for he is not the god of death but of the living there are no dead for all live to him but don't you think we naturally shrink from death harry said my wife there can be no doubt about that my dear then if it be natural god must have meant that it should be so doubtless to begin with but not to continue or end with a child's soul desires this for food the very possible to begin with but how would it be if the child should reach say two years of age and refuse to share this same food with his little brother or what comes of the man who never so far rises above the desire for food that nothing could make him forget his dinner hour just so the life of christians should be strong enough to overcome the fear of death we ought to love and believe him so much that when he says we shall not die we should at least believe that death must be something very different from what it looks to us to be so different that what we mean by the word does not apply to the reality at all and so jesus cannot use the word because it would seem to us that he meant what we mean by it which he seeing it all around cannot mean that does seem quite reasonable said ethelwyn turner had taken no part in the conversation he too had just come in from a walk over the hills 
He was now standing, looking out at the sea. She looks uneasy, does she not? I said. You mean the Atlantic, he returned, looking round. Yes, I think so. I am glad she is not a patient of mine. I fear she is going to be very feverish, probably delirious before morning. She won't sleep much, and will talk rather loud when the tide comes in. Disease has often an ebb and flow like the tide, has it not? Often, some diseases are like a plant that has its time to grow and blossom, then dies. Others, as you say, ebb and flow again and again before they vanish. It seems to me, however, that the ebb and flow does not belong to the disease, but to nature, which works through the disease. It seems to me that my life has its tides, just like the ocean, only a little more regularly. It is high water with me always in the morning and the evening. In the afternoon life is at its lowest, and I believe it is lowest again when we sleep, and hence it comes that to work the brain at night has such an injurious effect on the system. But this is perhaps all a fancy. There may be some truth in it, but I was just thinking when you spoke to me what a happy thing it is that the tide does not vary by even six hours, but has the odd minutes, whence we see endless changes in the relation of the water to the times of the day. And then the spring tides and the neap tides. What a provision there is in the world for change. Yes, change is one of the forms that infinitude takes for the use of us human immortals. But come and have some tea, Turner. You would not care to go out again. What shall we do this evening? Shall we go to Connie's room and have some Shakespeare? I could wish nothing better. What play shall we have? Let us have the Midsummer Night's Dream, said Ethelwyn. You like to go by contraries, apparently, Ethel. But you're quite right. It is in the winter of the year that art must give us its summer. I suspect that most of the poetry about spring and summer is written in winter. It is generally when we do not possess that we lay full value upon what we lack. There is one reason, said Winnie, with a roguish look, why I like that play. I should think there might be more than one, Winnie, but one reason is enough for a woman at once, isn't it, Papa? I'm not sure of that, but what is your reason? that the fairies are not allowed to play any tricks with the women. They are true throughout. I might choose to say that was because they were not tried, and I might venture to answer that Shakespeare, being true to nature always, as you say, Papa, knew very well how absurd it would be to represent a woman's feelings as under the influence of the juice of a paltry flower. Capital, Winnie said her mother, and Turner and I chimed in with our approbation. Shall I tell you what I like best in the play, said Turner? It is the common sense of thesis in accounting for all the bewilderments of the night. But, said Ethelwyn, he was wrong after all. What is the use of common sense if it leads you wrong? The common sense of thesis simply amounted to this, that he would only believe his own eyes. I think Mrs. Walton is right, Turner, I said, 
For my part, I have more admired the open-mindedness of Hippolytia, who would yield more weight to the consistency of the various testimony that could be altogether counterbalanced by the negation of her own experience. Now I will tell you what I most admire in the play. It is the reconciling power of the poet. He brings together such marvelous contrasts without a single shock or jar to your feeling of the artistic harmony of the conjunction. Think for a moment, the ordinary commonplace courtiers, the lovers, men and women, in the condition of all conditions in which fairy powers might get hold of them, the quarreling king and queen of fairyland, with their courtiers, blossoms, cobwebs, and the rest, and the court jester, Puck, the ignorant clownish artisans, rehearsing their play, fairies and clowns, lovers and courtiers, are all mingled in one exquisite harmony, clothed with the night of early summer, rounded in the wedding of the king and queen. But I have talked enough about it. Let us get our books. As we sat in Connie's room, delighting ourselves with the reflex of the poet's fancy, the sound of the rising tide kept mingling with the fairy talk and the foolish rehearsal. Musk roses, said Titania, and the first of the blasts going round by the south to west rattled the window. Good hay, sweet hay, hath no fellow, said Bottom, and the roar of the waters was in our ears. So doth the woodbine the sweet honeysuckle gently in twist, said Titania, and the blast poured the rain in a spout against the window. Slow in pursuit, but matched in mouth like bells, said Thesis, and the wind whistled shrill through the chinks of the bark-house opening from the room. We drew the curtains closer, made up the fire higher, and read on. It was time for supper ere we had done, and when we left Connie to have hers and go to sleep, it was with the hope that, through all the rising storm, she would dream of breeze-haunted summer woods. End of chapter 6